Part Second of Nostromo by Joseph Conrad The Isabels Chapter 8, Section 1 This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan Part Second, The Isabels Chapter 8, Section 1 For a moment, before this extraordinary find, they forgot their own concerns and sensations. Senor Hirsch's sensations as he lay there must have been those of extreme terror. For a long time he refused to give a sign of life, till at last Decoud's objurgations, and perhaps more Nostromo's impatient suggestion that he should be thrown overboard, as he seemed to be dead, induced him to raise one eyelid first, and then the other. It appeared that he had never found a safe opportunity to leave Sulaco. He lodged with Anzani, the universal storekeeper, on the Plaza Mayor. But when the riot broke out, he had made his escape from his host's house before daylight, and in such a hurry that he had forgotten to put on his shoes. He had run out impulsively in his socks and with his hat in his hand into the garden of Anzani's house. Fear gave him the necessary agility to climb over several low walls, and afterwards he blundered into the overgrown cloisters of the ruined Franciscan convent in one of the by-streets. He forced himself into the midst of matted bushes with the recklessness of desperation, and this accounted for his scratched body and his torn clothing. He lay hidden there all day, his tongue cleaving to the roof of his mouth with all the intensity of thirst engendered by heat and fear. Three times different bands of men invaded the place with shouts and imprecations, looking for Father Corbelan. But towards the evening, still lying on his face in the bushes, he thought he would die from the fear of silence. He was not very clear as to what had induced him to leave the place, but evidently he had got out and slunk successfully out of town along the deserted back lanes. He wandered in the darkness near the railway, so maddened by apprehension that he dared not even approach the fires of the pickets of Italian workmen guarding the line. He had a vague idea, evidently, of finding a refuge in the railway yards, but the dogs rushed upon him, barking. Men began to shout. A shot was fired at random. He fled away from the gates. By the merest accident, as it happened, he took the direction of the OSN company's officers. Twice he stumbled upon the bodies of men killed during the day, but everything living frightened him much more. He crouched, crept, crawled, made dashes, guided by a sort of animal instinct, keeping away from every light and from every sound of voices. His idea was to throw himself at the feet of Captain Mitchell and beg for shelter in the company's offices. It was all dark there as he approached on his hands and knees, but suddenly someone on guard challenged loudly, Quien vive? There were more dead men lying about, and he flattened himself down at once by the side of a cold corpse. He heard a voice saying, Here is one of those wounded rascals crawling about. Shall I go and finish him? And another voice objected that it was not safe to go out without a lantern upon such an errand. Perhaps it was only some negro liberal looking for a chance to stick a knife into the stomach of an honest man. Hirsch didn't stay to hear any more, but crawling away to the end of the wharf, hid himself among a lot of empty casks. After a while, some people came along, talking and with glowing cigarettes. He did not stop to ask himself whether they would be likely to do him any harm, but bolted incontinently along the jetty, saw a lighter lying moored at the end, and threw himself into it. In his desire to find cover, he crept right forward under the half-deck, 
and he had remained there more dead than alive, suffering agonies of hunger and thirst and almost fainting with terror, when he heard numerous footsteps and the voices of the Europeans who came in a body escorting the wagon-load of treasure pushed along the rails by a squad of cargadores. He understood perfectly what was being done from the talk, but did not disclose his presence from the fear that he would not be allowed to remain. His only idea at that time, overpowering and masterful, was to get away from this terrible Salako. And now he regretted it very much. He had heard Nostromo talk to Decoux and wished himself back on shore. He did not desire to be involved in any desperate affair, in a situation where one could not run away. The involuntary groans of his anguished spirit had betrayed him to the sharp ears of the Capitaz. They had propped him up in a sitting posture against the side of the lighter, and he went on with the moaning account of his adventures till his voice broke, his head fell forward. Water, he whispered with difficulty. Decoux held one of the cans to his lips. He revived after an extraordinarily short time and scrambled up to his feet wildly. Nostromo, in an angry and threatening voice, ordered him forward. Hirsch was one of those men whom fear lashes like a whip, and he must have had an appalling idea of the Capitaz's ferocity. He displayed an extraordinary agility in disappearing forward into the darkness. They heard him getting over the tarpaulin, then there was the sound of a heavy fall followed by a weary sigh. Afterwards all was still in the forepart of the lighter, as though he had killed himself in his headlong tumble. Nostromo shouted in a menacing voice, "'Lie still there!' Do not move a limb. If I hear as much as a loud breath from you, I shall come over there and put a bullet through your head. The mere presence of a coward, however passive, brings an element of treachery into a dangerous situation. Nostromo's nervous impatience passed into gloomy thoughtfulness. Decoux, in an undertone, as if speaking to himself, remarked that, after all, this bizarre event made no great difference. He could not conceive what harm the man could do. At most he would be in the way, like an inanimate and useless object, like a block of wood, for instance. I would think twice before getting rid of a piece of wood, said Nostromo calmly. Something may happen unexpectedly where you could make use of it. But in an affair like ours, a man like this ought to be thrown overboard. Even if he were as brave as a lion, we would not want him here. We are not running away for our lives. Senor, there is no harm in a brave man trying to save himself with ingenuity and courage. But you have heard his tale, Don Martin. His being here is a miracle of fear. Nostromo paused. There is no room for fear in this lighter, he added through his teeth. Decoux had no answer to make. It was not a position for argument, for a display of scruples or feelings. There were a thousand ways in which a panic-stricken man could make himself dangerous. It was evident that Hirsch could not be spoken to, reasoned with, or persuaded into a rational line of conduct. The story of his own escape demonstrated that clearly enough. Decoux thought that it was a thousand pities the wretch had not died of fright. Nature, who had made him what he was, seemed to have calculated cruelly how much he could bear in the way of atrocious anguish without actually expiring. Some compassion was due to so much terror. Decoux, though imaginative enough for sympathy, resolved not to interfere with any action that Nostromo would take. But Nostromo did nothing, and the fate of Signor Hirsch remained suspended in the darkness of the gulf, at the mercy of events which could not be foreseen. 
The Capataz, extending his hand, put out the candle suddenly. It was to Decoud as if his companion had destroyed by a single touch the world of affairs, of loves, of revolution, where his complacent superiority analysed fearlessly all motives and all passions, including his own. He gasped a little. Decoud was affected by the novelty of his position. Intellectually self-confident, he suffered from being deprived of the only weapon he could use with effect. No intelligence could penetrate the darkness of the placid gulf. There remained only one thing he was certain of, and that was the overweening vanity of his companion. It was direct, uncomplicated, naive and effectual. Decoud, who had been making use of him, had tried to understand his man thoroughly. He had discovered a complete singleness of motive behind the varied manifestations of a consistent character. This was why the man remained so astonishingly simple in the jealous greatness of his conceit. And now there was a complication. It was evident that he resented having been given a task in which there were so many chances of failure. I wonder, thought Decoud, how he would behave if I were not here. He heard Nostromo mutter again, No, there is no room for fear in this lighter. Courage itself does not seem good enough. I have a good eye and a steady hand. No man can say he ever saw me tired or uncertain what to do. But poor Dios, Don Martin, I have been sent out into this black calm on a business where neither a good eye nor a steady hand nor judgment are of any use. He swore a string of oaths in Spanish and Italian under his breath. Nothing but sheer desperation will do for this affair. These words were in strange contrast to the prevailing peace, to this almost solid stillness of the gulf. A shower fell with an abrupt whispering sound all round the boat, and Decoud took off his hat, and letting his head get wet felt greatly refreshed. Presently a steady little draught of air caressed his cheek. The lighter began to move, but the shower distanced it. The drops ceased to fall upon his head and hands. The whispering died out in the distance. Nostromo emitted a grunt of satisfaction and, grasping the tiller, chirruped softly as sailors do to encourage the wind. Never for the last three days had Decoud felt less the need for what the Capitaz would call desperation. I fancy I hear another shower on the water, he observed in a tone of quiet content. I hope it will catch us up. Nostromo ceased chirruping at once. You'll hear another shower, he said doubtfully. A sort of thinning of the darkness seemed to have taken place, and Decoud could see now the outline of his companion's figure, and even the sail came out of the night like a square block of dense snow. The sound which Decoud had detected came along the water harshly. Nostromo recognised that noise, partaking of a hiss and a rustle, which spreads out on all sides of a steamer making her way through a smooth water on a quiet night. It could be nothing else but the captured transport with troops from Esmeralda. She carried no lights. The noise of her steaming, growing louder every minute, would stop at times altogether and then begin again abruptly and sound startlingly nearer, as if that invisible vessel, whose position could not be precisely guessed, were making straight for the lighter. Meantime that last kept on sailing slowly and noiselessly before a breeze so faint that it was only by leaning over the side and feeling the water slip through his fingers that Decoud convinced himself they were moving at all. 
His drowsy feeling had departed. He was glad to know that the lighter was moving. After so much stillness, the noise of the steamer seemed uproarious and distracting. There was a weirdness in not being able to see her. Suddenly, all was still. She had stopped, but so close to them that the steam blowing off sent its rumbling vibration right over their heads. They are trying to make out where we are, said Deku in a whisper. Again he leaned over and put his fingers into the water. We are moving quite smartly, he informed Nostromo. We seem to be crossing her bows, said the Capitaz in a cautious tone. But this is a blind game with death. Moving on is no use. We mustn't be seen or heard. His whisper was hoarse with excitement. Of all his face there was nothing visible but a gleam of white eyeballs. His fingers gripped Deku's shoulder. That is the only way to save this treasure from this steamer full of soldiers. Any other would have carried lights, but you observe there is not a gleam to show us where she is. Deku stood as if paralysed. Only his thoughts were wildly active. In the space of a second he remembered the desolate glance of Antonia as he left her at the bedside of her father in the gloomy house of Avianos with shuttered windows, but all the doors standing open, and deserted by all the servants except an old negro at the gate. He remembered the Casa Gould on his last visit, the arguments, the tones of his voice, the impenetrable attitude of Charles, Mrs. Gould's face so blanched with anxiety and fatigue that her eyes seemed to have changed colour, appearing nearly black by contrast. Even whole sentences of the proclamation which he meant to make Barrios issue from his headquarters at Caeta as soon as he got there passed through his mind. The very germ of the new state, the separationist proclamation which he had tried before he left to read hurriedly to Don Jose, stretched out on his bed under the fixed gaze of his daughter. God knows whether the old statesman had understood it. He was unable to speak, but he had certainly lifted his arm off the coverlet. His hand had moved as if to make the sign of the cross in the air, a gesture of blessing, of consent. Deku had that very draft in his pocket, written in pencil on several loose sheets of paper with the heavily printed heading Administration of the Santome Silver Mine, Sulaco, Republic of Costaguana. He had written it furiously, snatching page after page on Charles Gould's table. Mrs Gould had looked several times over her shoulder as he wrote, but the Senor Administrador, standing straggled-legged, would not even glance at it when it was finished. He had waved it away, firmly. It must have been scorn, not caution, since he never made a remark about the use of the administration's paper for such a compromising document. And that showed his disdain the true English disdain of common prudence, as if everything outside the range of their own thoughts and feelings were unworthy of serious recognition. Deku had the time in a second or two to become furiously angry with Charles Gould and even resentful against Mrs Gould, in whose care, tacitly it is true, he had left the safety of Antonia. Better perish a thousand times than owe your preservation to such people, he exclaimed mentally. The grip of Nostromo's fingers never removed from his shoulder, tightening fiercely, recalled him to himself. The darkness is our friend, the Capitaz murmured into his ear. I am going to lower the sail and thrust our escape to this black gulf. No eyes could make us out lying silent with a naked mast. I will do it now before this steamer closes still more upon us. 
The faint creak of a block would betray us and the Saint Tome treasure into the hands of those thieves. He moved about as warily as a cat. Decoud heard no sound, and it was only by the disappearance of the square blotch of darkness that he knew the yard had come down, lowered as carefully as if it had been made of glass. Next moment he heard Nostromo's quiet breathing by his side. "'You had better not move at all from where you are, Don Martin,' advised the Capitaz earnestly. "'You might stumble or displace something which would make a noise.' The sweeps and the punting poles are lying about. Move not for your life. Por Dios, Don Martin, he went on in a keen but friendly whisper. I am so desperate that if I didn't know your worship to be a man of courage, capable of standing stock still, whatever happens, I would drive my knife into your heart. A death-like stillness surrounded the lighter. It was difficult to believe that there was near a steamer full of men with many pairs of eyes peering from her bridge for some hint of land in the night. Her steam had ceased blowing off, and she remained stopped too far off, apparently, for any other sound to reach the lighter. "'Perhaps you would, Capitaz,' Decoud began in a whisper. "'However, you need not trouble. There are other things than the fear of your knife to keep my heart steady. It shall not betray you.' Only you have forgotten. I spoke to you openly, as a man as desperate as myself, explained the Capitaz. The silver must be saved from the Monterist. I told Captain Mitchell three times that I preferred to go alone. I told Don Carlos, too. It was in the Casa Gould. They had sent for me. The ladies were there, and when I tried to explain why I did not wish to have you with me, they promised me, both of them, great rewards for your safety. A strange way to talk to a man you are sending out to an almost certain death. Those gentlefolk do not seem to have sense enough to understand what they are giving one to do. I told them I could do nothing for you. You would have been safer with the bandit Hernandez. It would have been possible to ride out of the town with no greater risk than a chance shot sent after you in the dark. But it was as if they had been deaf. I had to promise I would wait for you under the harbour gate. I did wait. And now, because you are a brave man, you are safe as the silver, neither more nor less. At that moment, as if by way of comment upon Nostromo's words, the invisible steamer went ahead at half speed only, as could be judged by the leisurely beat of her propeller. The sound shifted its place markedly, but without coming nearer. It even grew a little more distant right abeam of the lighter, and then ceased again. They are trying for a sight of the Isabels, muttered Nostromo, in order to make for the harbour in a straight line and seize the custom house with the treasure in it. Have you ever seen the commandant of Esmeralda, Sotillo? A handsome fellow with a soft voice. When I first came here, I used to see him in the calle, talking to the senoritas at the windows of the houses and showing his white teeth all the time. But one of my cargadores, who had been a soldier, told me that he had once ordered a man to be flayed alive in the remote campo, where he was sent recruiting amongst the people of the estancias. It has never entered his head that the compagna has a man capable of baffling his game. The murmuring loquacity of the Capitaz disturbed Decoud like a hint of weakness. And yet, talkative resolution may be as genuine as grim silence. 
Sotillo is not baffled so far, he said. Have you forgotten that crazy man Ford? Nostromo had not forgotten Signor Hirsch. He reproached himself bitterly for not having visited the lighter carefully before leaving the wharf. He reproached himself for not having stabbed and flung Hirsch overboard at the very moment of discovery without even looking at his face. That would have been consistent with the desperate character of the affair. Whatever happened, Sotillo was already baffled. Even if that wretch, now as silent as death, did anything to portray the nearness of the lighter Sotillo, if Sotillo it was in command of the troops on board, would be still baffled of his plunder. I have an axe in my hand, Nostromo whispered wrathfully, that in three strokes would cut through the side down to the water's edge. Moreover, each lighter has a plug in the stern, and I know exactly where it is. I feel it under the sole of my foot. Deku recognised the ring of genuine determination in the nervous murmurs, the vindictive excitement of the famous Capitaires. Before the steamer, guided by a shriek or two, for there could be no more than that, Nostromo said, gnashing his teeth audibly, could find the lighter, there would be plenty of time to sink this treasure tied up round his neck. The last words he hissed into Deku's ear. Deku said nothing. He was perfectly convinced. The usual characteristic quietness of the man was gone. It was not equal to the situation as he conceived it. Something deeper, something unsuspected by everyone, had come to the surface. Deku, with careful movements, slipped off his overcoat and divested himself of his boots. He did not consider himself bound in honour to sink with the treasure. His object was to get down to Barrios in Caeta, as the Capitas knew very well, and he too meant in his own way to put into that attempt all the desperation of which he was capable. Nostromo muttered, Throw, throw, you are a politician, senor. Rejoin the army and start another revolution. He pointed out, however, that there was a little boat belonging to every lighter fit to carry two men, if not more. Theirs was towing behind. Of that, Deku had not been aware. Of course, it was too dark to see, and it was only when Nostromo put his hand upon its painter, fastened to a cleat in the stern, that he experienced a full measure of relief. The prospect of finding himself in the water and swimming, overwhelmed by ignorance and darkness, probably in a circle, till he sank from exhaustion, was revolting. The barren and cruel futility of such an end intimidated his affectation of careless pessimism. In comparison to it, the chance of being left floating in a boat, exposed to thirst, hunger, discovery, imprisonment, execution, presented itself with an aspect of amenity worth securing, even at the cost of some self-contempt. He did not accept Nostromo's proposal that he should get into the boat at once. Something sudden may overwhelm us, Signor de Capitaz remarked, promising faithfully at the same time to let go the painter at the moment when the necessity became manifest. But Decoux assured him lightly that he did not mean to take to the boat till the very last moment, and that then he meant the Capitaz to come along too. The darkness of the gulf was no longer for him the end of all things. It was part of a living world, since, pervading it, failure and death could be felt at your elbow and at the same time it was a shelter. He exulted in its impenetrable obscurity. Like a wall, like a wall, he muttered to himself. The only thing which checked his confidence was the thought of Signor Hirsch. 
Natur bound and gagged him seemed to Decoud now the height of improvident folly. As long as the miserable creature had the power to raise a yell, he was a constant danger. His abject terror was mute now, but there was no saying from what cause it might suddenly find vent in shrieks. This very madness of fear, which both Decoud and Nostromo had seen in the wild and irrational glances and in the continuous twitchings of his mouth, protected Signor Hirsch from the cruel necessities of this desperate affair. The moment of silencing him forever had passed. As Nostromo remarked in answer to Decoud's regrets, it was too late. It could not be done without noise, especially in the ignorance of the man's exact position. Wherever he had elected to crouch and tremble, it was too hazardous to go near him. He would begin, probably, to yell for mercy. It was much better to leave him quite alone, since he was keeping so still. But to trust to his silence became every moment a greater strain upon Decoud's composure. "'I wish, Capataz, you had not let the right moment pass,' he murmured. "'What? To silence him for ever? I thought it good to hear first how he came to be here.' It was too strange. Who could imagine that it was all an accident? Afterwards, Signor, when I saw you giving him water to drink, I could not do it. Not after I had seen you holding up the can to his lips as though he were your brother. Signor, that sort of necessity must not be thought of too long. And yet it would have been no cruelty to take away from him his wretched life. It is nothing but fear. Your compassion saved him then, Don Martin, and now it is too late. It couldn't be done without noise. In the steamer they were keeping a perfect silence, and the stillness was so profound that Decoud felt as if the slightest sound conceivable must travel unchecked and audible to the end of the world. What if Hirsch coughed or sneezed? To feel himself at the mercy of such an idiotic contingency was too exasperating to be looked upon with irony. Nostromo, too, seemed to be getting restless, was it possible, he asked himself, that the steamer, finding the night too dark altogether, intended to remain stopped where she was till daylight? He began to think that this, after all, was the real danger. He was afraid that the darkness which was his protection would, in the end, cause his undoing. Sotillo, as Nostromo had surmised, was in command on board the transport. The events of the last forty-eight hours in Sulaco were not known to him, neither was he aware that the telegraphist in Esmeralda had managed to warn his colleague in Sulaco. Like a good many officers of the troops garrisoning the province, Sotillo had been influenced in his adoption of the Ribierist cause by the belief that it had the enormous wealth of the Gould concession on its side. He had been one of the frequenters of the Casa Gould, where he had aired his Blanco convictions and his ardour for reform before Don José Avellanos, casting frank, honest glances towards Mrs. Gould and Antonia the while. He was known to belong to a good family persecuted and impoverished during the tyranny of Guzman Bento. The opinions he expressed appeared eminently natural and proper in a man of his parentage and antecedents. And he was not a deceiver. It was perfectly natural for him to express elevated sentiments while his whole faculties were taken up with what seemed then a solid and practical notion, the notion that the husband of Antonia Avellanos would be, naturally, the intimate friend of the Gould concession. He even pointed this out to Anzani once when negotiating the sixth or seventh small loan in the gloomy, damp apartment with enormous iron bars behind the principal shop in the whole row under the arcades. 
He hinted to the universal shopkeeper at the excellent terms he was on with the emancipated senorita, who was like a sister to the Englishwoman. He would advance one leg and put his arms akimbo, posing for Anzani's inspection and fixing him with a haughty stare. Look, miserable shopkeeper, how can a man like me fail with any woman, let alone an emancipated girl living in scandalous freedom, he seemed to say. His manner in the Casa Gould was, of course, very different, devoid of all truculence and even slightly mournful. Like most of his countrymen, he was carried away by the sound of fine words, especially if uttered by himself. He had no convictions of any sort upon anything, except as to the irresistible power of his personal advantages. But that was so firm that even Decoud's appearance in Sulaco and his intimacy with the Goulds and the Avellanoses did not disquiet him. On the contrary, he tried to make friends with that rich Costaguanero from Europe in the hope of borrowing a large sum by and by. The only guiding motive of his life was to get money for the satisfaction of his expensive tastes, which he indulged recklessly, having no self-control. He imagined himself a master of intrigue, but his corruption was as simple as an animal instinct. At times, in solitude, he has his moments of ferocity, and also on such occasions as, for instance, when alone in a room with Anzani, trying to get a loan. He had talked himself into the command of the Esmeralda garrison. That small seaport had its importance as the station of the main submarine cable connecting the Occidental provinces with the outer world, and the junction with it of the Sulaco branch. Don José Avellanos proposed him, and Barrios, with a rude and jeering afore, had said, Oh, let Sotillo go, he is a very good man to keep guard over the cable, and the ladies of Esmeralda ought to have their turn. Barrios, an indubitably brave man, had no great opinion of Sotillo. It was through the Esmeralda cable alone that the San Tomé mine could be kept in constant touch with the great financier whose tacit approval made the strength of the Ribierist movement. This movement had its adversaries even there. Sotillo governed Esmeralda with repressive severity till the adverse course of events upon the distant theatre of civil war forced upon him the reflection that, after all, the great silver mine was fate to become the spoil of the victors but caution was necessary. He began by assuming a dark and mysterious attitude towards the faithful Ribierist municipality of Esmeralda. Later on, the information that the Commandant was holding assemblies of officers in the dead of night, which had leaked out somehow, caused those gentlemen to neglect their civil duties altogether and remain shut up in their houses. Suddenly, one day, all the letters from Sulaco by the overland couriers were carried off by a file of soldiers from the post office to the commandancia without disguise, concealment or apology. Sotillo had heard through Caeta of the final defeat of Ribiera. This was the first open sign of the change in his convictions. 
presently, notorious Democrats who had been living till then in constant fear of arrest, leg irons and even floggings, could be observed going in and out at the great door of the Commandancia, where the horses of the orderlies doze under their heavy saddles, while the men in ragged uniforms and pointed straw hats lounged on a bench with their naked feet stuck out beyond the strip of shade, and a sentry in a red baize coat with holes at the elbows stands at the top of the steps glaring haughtily at the common people who uncover their heads to him as they pass. So Tio's ideas did not soar above the care for his personal safety and the chance of plundering the town in his charge, but he feared that such a late adhesion would earn but scant gratitude from the victors. He had believed just a little too long in the power of the San Tome mine. The seized correspondence had confirmed his previous information of a large amount of silver ingots lying in the Sulaco Custom House. To gain possession of it would be a clear Monterist move, a sort of service that would have to be rewarded. With the silver in his hands he could make terms for himself and his soldiers. He was aware neither of the riots nor of the President's escape to Sulaco and the close pursuit led by Montero's brother, the guerrillero. The game seemed in his own hands. The initial moves were the seizure of the cable telegraph office and the securing of the government steamer lying in the narrow creek which is the harbour of Esmeralda. The last was effected without difficulty by a company of soldiers swarming with a rush over the gangways as she lay alongside the quay but the lieutenant charged with the duty of arresting the telegraphist halted on the way before the only café in Esmeralda, where he distributed some brandy to his men and refreshed himself at the expense of the owner, a known Ribierist. The whole party became intoxicated and proceeded on their mission up the street, yelling and firing random shots at the windows. This little festivity, which might have turned out dangerous to the telegraphist's life, enabled him in the end to send his warning to Sulaco. The lieutenant, staggering upstairs with a drawn sabre, was before long kissing him on both cheeks in one of those swift changes of mood peculiar to a state of drunkenness. He clasped the telegraphist close round the neck, assuring him that all the officers of the Esmeralda garrison were going to be made colonels, while tears of happiness streamed down his sodden face. Thus it came about that the town major, coming along later, found the whole party sleeping on the stairs and in passages, and the telegraphist, who scorned this chance of escape, very busy clicking the key of the transmitter. The major led him away bareheaded with his hands tied behind his back, but concealed the truth from Sotillo, who remained in ignorance of the warning dispatched to Sulaco. The colonel was not the man to let any sort of darkness stand in the way of the planned surprise. It appeared to him a dead certainty. His heart was set upon his object with an ungovernable, childlike impatience. Ever since the steamer had rounded Punta Mala to enter the deeper shadow of the gulf, he had remained on the bridge in a group of officers as excited as himself. Distracted between the coaxings and menacings of Sotillo and his staff, the miserable commander of the steamer kept her moving with as much prudence as they would let him exercise. Some of them had been drinking heavily, no doubt, but the prospect of laying hands on so much wealth made them absurdly foolhardy and at the same time extremely anxious. 
the old major of the battalion, a stupid, suspicious man who had never been afloat in his life, distinguished himself by putting out suddenly the binnacle light, the only one allowed on board for the necessities of navigation. He could not understand of what use it could be for finding the way. To the vehement protestations of the ship's captain, he stamped his foot and tapped the handle of his sword. Aha! I have unmasked you, he cried triumphantly. You are tearing your hair from despair at my acuteness. Am I a child to believe that a light in that brass box can show you where the harbour is? I am an old soldier, I am. I can smell a traitor a league off. You wanted that gleam to betray our approach to your friend the Englishman. A thing like that show you the way. What a miserable lie. Que picardia. You Sulaco people are all in the pay of those foreigners. You deserve to be run through the body with my sword. Other officers crowding round tried to calm his indignation, repeating persuasively, No, no, this is an appliance of the mariners, Major. This is no treachery. The captain of the transport flung himself face downwards on the bridge and refused to rise. Put an end to me at once, he repeated in a stifled voice. Satio had to interfere. The uproar and confusion on the bridge became so great that the helmsman fled from the wheel. He took refuge in the engine room and alarmed the engineers, who, disregarding the threats of the soldiers set on guard over them, stopped the engines, protesting that they would rather be shot than run the risk of being drowned down below. This was the first time Nostromo and Decoux heard the steamer stop. After order had been restored and the binnacle lamp relighted, she went ahead again passing wide of the lighter in her search for the Isabels. The group could not be made out, and, at the pitiful entreaties of the captain, Sotillo allowed the engines to be stopped again to wait for one of those periodical lightnings of darkness caused by the shifting of the cloud canopy spread above the waters of the gulf. Sotillo, on the bridge, muttered from time to time angrily to the captain. The other, in an apologetic and cringing tone, begged Sumer said the colonel to take into consideration the limitations put upon human faculties by the darkness of the night. Satio swelled with rage and impatience. It was the chance of a lifetime. If your eyes are no more use to you than this, I shall have them put out, he yelled. The captain of the steamer made no answer, for just then the mass of the great Isabel loomed up darkly after a passing shower, then vanished as if swept away by a wave of greater obscurity preceding another downpour. This was enough for him. In the voice of a man come back to life again, he informed Satillo that in an hour he would be alongside the Sulaco wharf. The ship was put then full speed on the course, and a great bustle of preparation for landing arose among the soldiers on her deck. It was heard distinctly by Decoux and Nostromo. The Capitas understood its meaning. They had made out the Isabels, and were going on now in a straight line for Sulaco. He judged that they would pass close, but believed that lying still like this, with a sail lowered, the lighter could not be seen. No, not even if they rubbed sides with us, he muttered. End of Part Second, The Isabels Chapter 8, Section 1